Well, today we come to the final installment of our four-part series on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And the reason for this series is simply, and I trust yet profoundly, to catch us up in the mystery and the majesty of the one we say is at the center of our faith, Jesus Christ. Billy Graham was asked a question well into his public ministry. The question was, if you had a chance to do it all over again, what uh, would you do differently? And I was taken by his profoundly simple answer. He said simply, I would trust God more. We've been looking at the supremacy of Jesus Christ simply to deepen our trust. In life and in death, there is only one who is eminently trustworthy. We need to put our trust there. Let me just give you a, a quick review of what we've gone over the last few weeks. We started in the book of Hebrews and said that Jesus is trustworthy because he took on human flesh. He shared in flesh and blood and then defeated the fear of death and entered into human suffering to redeem it. Two Sundays ago in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, we said that uh, Jesus is trustworthy because any God who is willing to divest himself of the prerogatives of God <laughs> and go to death on a cross is somebody we can put our confidence in. But then last Sunday, we turned to from the smallness of God to the immensity of God in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, because we said that Jesus is the last word about God, the last word about creation, and the last word about redemption, that he is the life force that holds all the universe together. And this morning, we turn to John's gospel, and we see that in Jesus, we behold the glory of God. So let me invite you to turn to our text of the morning, which is in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and verse 14, and verse 18. And let's read responsively, as is our custom, starting at verse 1. Just as an introduction, we are introduced to the Word. In the beginning was the Word. This is the Greek word logos. Uh, in the Greek setting of philosophy of that day, it meant kind of the rational order of the universe. But John takes it and applies it to the person of Jesus Christ and says that when God communicated to us the Word, He communicated to us fully in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. I want to focus in on one phrase this morning out of John 1, 14. We have seen his glory, glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Glory of the one and only who came from from the Father. Now, as soon as we read that verse, we probably should immediately have a question. The question is, how can this be so? 
How does God's glory come among us in the person of Jesus in such a way that we are not completely bowled over? How does God reveal himself to us without crushing us? How does God's display of his brilliance and majesty come without overwhelming us? Well, these are the questions that the 19th century philosopher, uh, Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, addressed in a parable of a prince who falls in love with a peasant maiden. The prince, of course, lives in regal splendor in a castle up on the hill. But he falls in love with a peasant maiden with rags on her back and barely food enough to eat who, who lives in very humble surroundings in a little cottage. But he wants to woo this peasant maiden, this regal prince, to himself. So he thinks, well, what should the plan be? Well, I think I'll go down and take her from her humble surroundings and bring her up to my castle, and I will dazzle her with my regal surroundings. Well, then he says, well, how about this plan? Maybe I'll show up at her cottage, accompanied by a retinue of chariots, soldiers, and horses. But then he thinks to himself, well, if he has that kind of regal display and splendor, well, she and I could have a choice. She'll be overwhelmed by all that I have to offer her. No, I want to woo her on more equal terms. And so he decides to cast off his royal advantage, don the garb of a poor woodsman, and proceeds to her home to plead his cause. Of course, this is Kierkegaard's way of giving us an analogy about Jesus coming to us apart from his eternal radiance, stripped of his splendor as a, and coming as a servant. The Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, says it, I think, quite well. He says, says, Jesus is veiled in flesh, the incarnate deity. In a sense, God toned himself down by stuffing himself inside a human body in a way that we could survive when we beheld him. Yet John tells us, and the word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. We have seen, beheld, witnessed, observed his glory. When that word is used in the New Testament 20 times, it means we've seen it literally, physically, not in in imagination. We beheld the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And in John's description of Jesus as the Word made flesh, he associates Jesus with the dwelling place of God and the one who manifests the glory of God. And John sort of assumes some Old Testament understanding from us here, that what he's talking about here is that the dwelling place of God is the temple or tabernacle from that Old Testament image. And so we read in in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, that word is, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and pitched its tent among us. Or I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He said, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. (laughs) Came one with us. So the whole idea here is that Jesus fulfills the images of the tabernacle or the temple. The presence or the place where God dwelled on earth. Where does he dwell now? Not in that building, but in a person. And then he goes on to say, associating glory with the tabernacle, that uh, Jesus is the glory of God. You might recall an Old Testament word 
which is the word Shekinah. We talk about the Shekinah glory of God, the dwelling place or the resident place where the glory of God resides. And so John is saying here, no longer are we talking about a physical temple where the glory of God resides. We're talking about a human being that fulfills the temple where the glory of God resides in the person of Jesus Christ. But the question that begs to be answered is, how is it possible for human beings to behold the glory of the incarnate God. See, John is fully aware that the glory of God is a threat to human beings. When the glory of God shows up, human beings scatter because of our moral imperfection in the presence of the glory of God. So we have to understand a little bit here about the Old Testament view of the glory of God in order to really get the words that John is saying here. The Old Testament Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod. I'm sure you're impressed that I know that. It's derived from a word that means weighty or important. And so we speak of matters of importance as matters that have great gravity, don't we? I think back to the, my 1960s, 70s days, uh, the era of the flower children. And uh, the flower children during those days uh, sometimes imbibe substances that we would consider illegal substances and uh, would get high on those substances and enter into these very insightful conversations where they thought they were saying some things to each other that were rather amazing. And in the midst of that, somebody would say something like, that's heavy, man, that's heavy. (laughs) The glory of God is God's heaviness, his, his gravity. There's an inseparable association between the holiness of God and the glory of God. The holiness of God is is God's defining characteristic. It's literally what makes God different or set apart. God's holiness is the quality that he cannot share with other human beings. It's what makes God God. So we see God saying in Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. The holiness of God is his impenetrable uniqueness. But the glory of God is the manifestation of that hiddenness, its impression upon our senses. When the holiness of God is manifested, it comes in the form of the glory of God, and it leaves an impression upon us. Most often, the glory of God is associated with some form of luminescence or fire or radiance, or often the presence of a cloud that represents the glory of God. So what was the experience of the glory of God among the Old Testament figures? Why couldn't the prince in our story simply show up with all of his magnificence to that peasant maiden? Well, the glory of God and human beings cannot occupy the same space. This was true at both the dedication of the tabernacle, that movable worship space, and the temple. In Exodus chapter 40, we are told after the tabernacle has been constructed and everything is in place, and now is the time for God to show up and reside in the temple. And so we read in in Exodus 40, then a cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Human beings and the glory of God could not abide in the same space. Even holy people, like priests, (laughs) could not be there. Same thing happened at the dedication of the temple, King Solomon's temple. Remember, the whole temple had been constructed, and then there was one final piece of furniture to bring into the temple. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark. Get that image in your mind. The Ark of the Covenant was the place where God resided. It had a mercy seat where the sacrifices were made. Only the high priest could go into it once a year at the time of the Day of Atonement. But once that ark was in place, the priests had to flee from the space. For we read, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God and human beings could not reside together when the glory of God was present. It was overwhelming. Even the holiest of human beings could not abide the presence of the glory of God. I would say the paragon of virtue in the 8th century B.C. from the 8th century prophets was the prophet Isaiah. Now, he came from a royal background. He was used to going in and out of regal space. But the Scripture tells us that in the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah had been a king for 52 years over Israel. He was the one that was a good king that they had relied on. Now they were saying to themselves, what should we do now that King Uzziah has died? What's going to happen? Well, Isaiah goes into the temple. When one sovereign, a human sovereign, died, he sees the picture of another sovereign. In the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And when he hears that and says that, all of a sudden, the kind of the ceiling, the roof of the temple opens up, and he he sees these six-winged creatures flying around who have been worshiping around the throne of God all the time. They're called seraphim. And he hears them say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, was that a comfort to Isaiah? Not at all. When God's holiness was revealed and his glory came, there were changes in Isaiah's physical surroundings all of a sudden. So we read in verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. There was an earthquake going on around him. The building was about ready to come down and what Isaiah saw was he was going to be entombed in this temple. Was he going to survive was his concern. As Californians, my wife and I have lived through a few earthquakes and have a little bit of the feel of the experience maybe that Isaiah had. The one that probably left the biggest impression on us was what was called the Loma Prieta earthquake. This is in the San Francisco Bay Area. A portion of the Bay Bridge collapsed during that time. You might recall that the World Series was brought to a halt between the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's. Everybody who lived in that territory knows exactly what they were doing on October 17th, 5.04 p.m. I was pastoring a church in the area at the time, and I had just started a meeting in my pastor's office, a fellow rather tense meeting. At 5.04, our world was rocked. Fifteen seconds is all it took for damage to be done. We dove under the lip of my desk. 
three or four of us who were in that room, when we felt our body parts and made sure they were all there, we made our way out of the building, looked back to see if it was still standing, realized that it was, and we all headed to our homes. My 14-year-old daughter was at home alone that afternoon because my wife as an elementary school principal was still on the job at 5.04 p.m. As I walked through the front door, our normally together daughter broke down into tears. <laughs> she had heard the crashing taking place in the house. We checked to see what damage had been done, realized it was superficial, got in the car, and then went up to my wife's school to see her in her yellow hard hat running around the school, making sure everything was still together. God's holiness, His presence, is unleashed fury that threatened to bring Isaiah's life down. God's holiness is of a magnitude far greater than can be measured on the Richter scale. And what was Isaiah's response to the threshold that was shaking around him? Isaiah was so traumatized that he pronounced judgment on himself. Woe to me, he said. This is literally the Yiddish phrase, oy vey. Woe to me, oy vey east mir, he says. And the reason for his self-judgment is not because of the physical danger, but because of the moral threat of the holy God. He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm lost. I'm coming unglued. I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm disintegrating. When a sinful human being is in the presence of the glory of God, it feels like we can't keep it together. And that's what Isaiah was experiencing. He said, For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. C.S. Lewis, in the first of his Narnia Chronicles, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think captures wonderfully this sense of fear that happens in the presence of the power of God. You might recall in the story that there are four children that have fallen into this mythical land of Narnia. Uh, Edmund is no longer with them, but Peter, Susan, and Lucy are together, and they're about right ready to meet Aslan for the first time. And they have developed a relationship with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. <laughs> and uh, Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, uh, is, is Aslan a man? And Mr. Beaver responds somewhat incredulously, Aslan a man? Certainly not. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite Safe? Safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. But I think then Peter captures our ambivalence towards being in the presence of God. He says, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to this point. But it was Moses who actually had the audacity to ask to see the glory of God. You might recall the incident towards the uh, end of Moses' leading of the people 
these people that Moses had been leading are rather recalcitrant. They are difficult to work with. And God is frankly quite, get quite fed up with trying to get these people to the promised land. And so Moses wants some reassurance. Uh, Lord, are, are you going to be with me all the way there? Are you going to give up on this people? And the Lord reaffirms that his presence will be with him. And I think because of that, Moses starts to get a bit bold. And he says to God, now show me your glory. Now what was Moses asking? Remove the veil of the cloud. Pull back the covering of your hiddenness. I want to see you for all that you are. I want to see you face to face. And the Lord essentially says, nice try. But you cannot know what you are asking. And so the Lord says to Moses, many things about me you can see, but you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And so the Lord passes by Moses by putting him in the cleft of the rock so that he only sees his backside, the glory of God. So with that background, we come back to John. We have seen his glory, Jesus' glory. Glory is the one and only who came from the Father. And then in verse 18, John tells us that there is one and only who has actually seen God face to face, and he was the one who makes God known. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who was at the Father's side, has made him known. And so what John is telling us here is that Jesus left the splendor of the Father's habitation and joined us here on earth in human flesh, and he displayed the glory of God in a way that we would not be blown away by that glory, because we've seen what the glory of God does when human beings are exposed to it. I think this is why Kierkegaard's parable is so helpful. God does not come to us with overwhelming splendor and regal brilliance so that we're overpowered and forced to submit, but he gives us room to make a choice. God's glory goes forth every time a human being willingly embraces the glory of the Son who woos us like this peasant king. Now, we would acknowledge there are times in Jesus' ministry as you read the New Testament when his glory breaks forth, right? When the power of God comes forth from him. I think of the time when uh, Peter is asked to cast his nets and there's this great hall like he had never seen before. Or the raising of Lazarus from the dead or the stilling of a storm, peace be still. Or the times when Jesus does things that only God has the prerogatives to do like forgive sin or be Lord of the Sabbath. But there was one time when the glory of God was exposed for a moment. You remember that time when Jesus went up in the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, as we call it? And Mark describes this occurrence. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Note the glory of God and light coming together there. And in this moment, the father chose to describe his relationship with his son. We read in verse 7, Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And who was one of the ones that was there? Peter was there. And do you think that had an impression upon Peter? Well, in fact, it had such an impression upon him that he records that incident 
in the, his second letter, Second Peter in the first chapter, Peter says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Do you think that that moment was reassuring to Peter when he was under persecution? When he might doubt the presence and the reality of Jesus Christ, Peter goes back to that and says, I witnessed the glory of God that moment when it was revealed. Yet when it comes to Jesus identifying the ultimate expression of his glory on earth, he does not point to the Mount of Transfiguration. To go back to our parable, he wasn't the prince unveiled, taking his rightful place on a castle throne or donning his kingly garb. No, Jesus marries the maiden and moves into her humble cottage to carry on our image here. The unveiling would come later and We'll talk about that in a moment. When Jesus talks about the height of expressing his glory, what does he talk about? When he talks about giving God glory and shining glory on himself, we read in John 17:1, Father, the time has come, meaning the time has not yet come, has not yet come, but now the time has come, the cross is before me. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. How is it that the Son shines light back on the Father? By being willing to go to the cross and give up his life for us because it's the expression of the love of God. Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us in while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Remember the centurion who presided at Jesus' crucifixion. When he saw him die, he said what? Surely this man was the Son of God. And what was it that he noticed in Jesus that was different from every other crucifixion that he had presided over? Because he had heard men wail on that cross, hurling all kinds of vile epithets in pain. But what does he hear Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was the ultimate expression of the glory of God in Jesus' mind. That's what he had come to do. And this leads us back, of course, to the text out of Philippians that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, where it says of the cross, who being in the very nature of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, became nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Yet there will come a time when the prince reveals his identity to his bride and then takes her to live with him in the castle on the hill. The glory of God displayed in the cross is not where the glory ends. In fact, in that same text that we looked at in John 17 and verse 5, we hear Jesus praying, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had in your presence before the world was made. 
You hear the nostalgia in Jesus' voice? I want to go home, Father. I want to come back to you, that place of face-to-face relationship that we shared. He has a consciousness that he existed before the world was created and wants to have that glory restored to him. So Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And I think this is our ultimate destination as well. The final goal of every Christian is to fulfill Moses' request. Show me your glory, Father. We want to enter into the glory that Jesus shares with the Father. And yet, and yet, on this side, we can't quite get there. My guess is that all of us have had those little glimmering moments where the glory of God has shown up, but they don't last. We stand on the beach in Hawaii and we watch the sunset and we say, ah, can you imagine? Maybe we've been in a prayer time and we've been enveloped by the love of God and we just want to hold on to that moment, those feelings, and yet those feelings dissipate and we can't quite hold on to the glory of God in our life. I think C.S. Lewis has put our longings so well. He says, at present, we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we will get in. And this is the picture of the ultimate revelation of God's glory upon which the New Testament ends. The supremacy of Jesus Christ will be unveiled for all of us to see. The book of Revelation concludes picturing God coming down to dwell upon earth among us. And when that happens, death, mourning, crying, and pain will be no more, thankfully. For the dwelling of God is with man. And then John sees this picture that ties everything that we've said this morning together. He said, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. We will mingle with the glories we see. In life and in death, the one reality that matters is that the glory of God has been revealed in the Son, and we will bask in that glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we've been on a journey this morning. We've seen how your glory revealed to sinful people makes us cower in your presence. And yet we've seen that the glory has come in the person of Jesus Christ in a way that we can receive it and that we can come into your presence because of the cross 
that has borne our sin and made the way open to come into your heart and life and that you have cleansed us through what you have done for us. And then you have put a longing in our heart, the longing to be able to mingle with the glories we see, to be able to have that sustained sense of your presence with us that seems so fleeting. And yet one day, the veil of your hiddenness will be removed and we will fully enter in and be able to sustain that presence of your glory shot through and through all of us. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.